Okay. Testing, testing, here we go. Da 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 da. Hey guys, it's me, Blake, and you're listening to Blonde Hair, Black Heart. Coming up in a bit, I'm speaking with a cast member from the Broadway production of Wicked, one of my favorite shows of all time. We had such a great convo, and if you're a fan of musical theater at all, you're going to love our chat, so stick around. So this week's Real Housewives of Orange County was one of my favorite episodes of the show in years, for a couple of reasons. First of all, the fact that an edible finally brought Heather Dubrow and Shannon Bedore together after years of conflict. I'm talking Chairgate, Please Leave, Nicole Weiss. I mean, if there was ever an argument for legalizing weed on the federal level, it's this friendship. <laughs> um, I was literally dying at that scene. Uh, the editors were bringing their A-game. The, the slowed down like drug trip edit was just... Mwah, chef's kiss. <laughs> now, what I really want to see coming up on the show is Boat Shannon plus Heather with an edible. Below deck, med, Nicole Marijuana. <laughs> okay, the second reason why I absolutely loved this episode of RHOC was the scenes with Heather and her family. You can say whatever you want about Heather. You can call her a snob, pretentious, phony. I mean, I don't agree, but you're entitled to your trash opinions. But in any regard, you cannot say that she is a bad mom. In fact, the scenes in this episode with her kids were maybe some of the most heartwarming scenes we've seen with Housewives kids in a really long time. First of all, the kids are so well-mannered. For how privileged they are, they could be little shits. And they honestly all seem really down-to-earth, they're really polite, and they all seem really smart, too. Um, I also loved how, you know, uh, their scene at the dinner at Nobu, it wasn't trying to portray this, like perfect idealized version of a family you know the kids were butting heads it was like a very normal sibling dynamic at a family dinner and what i loved was how heather handled it she didn't shut cat down for being in her feelings she you know let her have her moment and be a teenager and then in the gardening scene where cat is talking about coming out of the closet and being bullied for it i i honestly like no shit i i legitimately cried watching it you know, I'm in a same-sex marriage, and I know all too well what it's like to be judged or feel like people are bullying you or, um, you know, uh, looking down on you for something that you can't control. And it's something that you're trying to understand and feel proud of yourself for. And it can be really difficult and extremely damaging. So having the support of your parents from such a young age is so important. And watching Heather be there for her kids and offer up Chateau Dubrow to other kids who aren't as lucky, you know, it was, it was really lovely. With that said, I wanted to bring up something that happened to my husband and I uh, just this last week. So here in Tucson, we have the annual gem and mineral show, and it is a big deal. Jewelry and gem and stone dealers from across the country come here and there's this huge expo and it's all just like a lot of sparkly, shiny stuff. So my easily distracted ass is all about it. <laughs> uh, so we're at the gem show and we're walking around, we're, you know, contemplating buying useless geodes and rocks of the sedimentary variety and such. So we, <laughs> we walk by this little stand where they're uh, hosting a raffle for this like really, really fugly crystal necklace. Um, but we love a contest, so we're like, sure, we'll enter. Sidebar, my husband won $500 on a scratcher this week, so cha-ching. 
Anyways, so we're entering this raffle and the lady behind the counter, she's she's probably in her 60s. Um, yeah, 60s maybe. And she's like explaining the rules and telling us about the prize. And she's like, yes, it's this beautiful necklace. You can give it to your girlfriends. And Matt and I, we just kind of like peripherally look at each other like, come on, lady. We're two men at the gem show together. Like, do you really think we're straight? <laughs> so I was just like, oh, well, we're married, so no girlfriends for either of us. And this lady got so awkward and uncomfortable. And she like tried to rebound by being like, oh, well, you know, you can just give it to your mom or your sister. Ha ha ha. And we were just like, yeah, okay, thanks. And we start to walk off and I hear her say to the man standing next to her as we're walking away, she's like, oh God, that was so embarrassing. And it's like, well, yes, you should be a little embarrassed. It's 2022. Stop making those kind of like generalizations and assumptions. Otherwise, you're going to find yourself embarrassed more and more frequently. But also, like, why couldn't she have said to us, oh my God, I'm so embarrassed. My apologies, you know? Why did she have to just like try and save face and then wait until we left to tell her friend that she's embarrassed? You know, own your mistake, recognize it, and apologize. And here's the thing, like, these little things aren't such a big deal on their own, you know? Like, one person making a wrong assumption isn't the end of the world, but it's not just this one time. It's actually something we experience on a very regular basis. Uh, I've always said I've been extremely lucky and that I had a very easy time coming out with my family, and I, I was never, like, gay-bashed as a kid. I, I had a lot of friends growing up. I was very fortunate. But that doesn't mean that I still haven't experienced microaggressions on a regular basis. And these types of microaggressions seem to exist only to remind us that we are not seen as normal. Every single time my husband and I go out to eat dinner, every single time, we are asked if we want separate checks. Doesn't matter if we're holding hands, sitting on the same side of the booth together, you know, we always have our wedding rings on, but every single time we're asked if we want separate checks. I've asked my parents, I've asked most of my straight friends who are married or coupled up, and this never happens to them. You know, no servers are going up to a guy and a girl having dinner together and asking them if they want separate checks. And it started as like a joke between Matt and I when we first started clocking it, and we'd be like, oh, it happened again, oh, it happened again. But now it's like so expected that we actually only notice when it doesn't happen, which is like never. Um, but again, it's something that it's just a reflection of the fact that this server's instinct is that two men together are just friends. They're just bros, you know? Uh, I mean, a few years ago, before we bought our first house, we were living in a condo, and one of our neighbors, he was an older man, but every time he would see me, he would exclusively refer to Matt as my buddy. Every day. He'd be like, oh, how's your buddy? And I would correct him and be like, oh, you mean my husband, Matt? He's good. And the next day, the same thing. How's your buddy? So anyways... There was mostly a lot of support for Heather Dubrow and Kat on this most recent episode of RHOC and her coming out of the closet on a national scale. But to those handful of really gross trolls who had negative things to say, mostly, you know, why is this on TV? Heather's exploiting her kids. Why do we need to talk about, you know, minors' sexualities? It's so inappropriate, blah, blah, blah. Um... You know, the fact that I, as a grown man who was married and committed and extremely comfortable in my identity, you know, the fact that I still experience these kind of microaggressions and reminders that society has not yet normalized the LGBTQ plus community fully, um, 
that is exactly why these conversations are so important. You know, if I need to hear it, then of course kids need to hear it and see it. And um, Kat Dubrow talking about her experience on national television can and probably will literally save a child's life. So bow down to Kat, bow down to Heather, the champs queen, an ultimate ally. Now invite me over to Chateau Dubrow and that would just scream gay rights. So the upcoming season of Real Housewives of Beverly Hills is wrapping up filming, and after months of no leaks in the press, all of a sudden, rumors are swirling all about the drama amongst the ladies. Apparently, on the last cast trip of the season, the gang was in Aspen, and some major drums was stirred up. First, Radar Online and other outlets were saying that Dorit and Erica left the trip early after Erica was confronted for a drinking and or pill problem, with Lisa Rinna leading the attack on the pretty mess. Ironic, seeing as how Rinna loves herself a martini, to throw, and the occasional Xanax smoothie, to drink. Also, who is she to judge? You don't know what I deal okay. with every night. Okay, but for real, I wouldn't blame Erica for hitting the bottle hard, all things considering. So that was the rumor for a bit. Then some IG sleuths noticed that Kathy had commented on her husband Rick's Instagram, begging him to get her out of Aspen. So immediately the spotlight shifted over to her, and people were curious about her involvement in all of the drama. Then Radar Online began to report that Kathy was actually the one who left early after getting into it with Rena. Flash forward to the filming of the finale party, which happened to fall on or around Super Bowl weekend. Kathy was not in attendance, and it was later revealed that she was actually at Trump's Super Bowl party. I actually posted about her not attending the finale party because she was hanging out with the Kofefe clan, <laughs> and Lisa Rinna commented that uh, shocked-looking side-eyes emoji, so take that for what you will. Obviously, now everyone is like, Kathy's a Trumper, so new rumors are swirling that the fight in Aspen was actually about Kathy saying something or some things that are seriously problematic. One rumor involves Sutton's assistant being called a British cigarette, and the other involves a racial slur and a bouncer at a nightclub in Aspen. And even if these rumors aren't true at all, the fact that she was at Trump's party doesn't help because if it's easy for us to believe these things are true, that's definitely not a good look. Now, throughout all of this, we've seen Lisa Rinna and Erica posting cryptic Instagram stories, which are fanning the flames of these rumors. And yesterday, Kyle posted one herself, something about being stabbed in the back. Is it about one of the other wives? Is it about her sister? Is it about Michael Myers? Who knows? But ultimately, if any of this is true and it plays out on screen, Kyle is going to have a choice to make. We've seen her go up against her family before, and honestly, she would probably rather go up against Michael Myers than Kathy Hilton again. What is true, we shall see. But what I do wonder is, do we all really still think Lisa Vanderpump is the one leaking everything to Radar Online? I mean, honestly, I always thought it was Lucy Lucy Applejuice. Let's talk the finale of Real Housewives of Salt Lake City. First and foremost, assumed felon Jen Shaw downsizing to a 4,500-square-foot house makes me feel so poor I could steal from an old person. Moving on. The photo shoot for Meredith's jewelry line is actually really cool. Um, like, I, I really liked the concept and the aesthetic of the photos. Uh, but overall, there's something that's just very cringe about the Marx family as a whole. They all seem like they're in a daze, and the men in the Marx family are so creepy. Brooks clearly picked up on some of Seth's, like, very odd flirting skills, but during this photo shoot, he's testing them out on his sister, 
It's just way too on the nose for Utah. Okay, Whitney and Justin's foreplay scene was so unnecessary, and as someone who is a total Monica Geller, I watched the entire thing thinking like, are you going to clean up all that champagne? Wait, you're getting paint all over your bedroom. What the fuck are you guys doing? Like, it wasn't hot at all. It gave me so much anxiety. If my husband ever tried to be sexy by, like, making a mess all over our house, I, I would have Mary send Jesus after him. Okay, Lisa Barlow's 80s party. I loved it. I really liked this idea of, like, a theme party, but it's not a costume party, so it's, like, dress normal, but with a hint of theme. Um, I, I really liked it, but I know that I would be the person that would show up to the party in full costume, like Elle Woods in a bunny outfit, or, like, I don't know, Whitney in a slutty gangster outfit. <laughs> um, but anyways, everyone looked great, the party looked great. Did you guys notice that Whitney took a shot of tequila and chased it with tequila, thinking that it was water? But, like, would water really have been any better? Do people chase things with water? Like, when I take a shot, I need a full glass of a highly flavored carbonated beverage to completely cleanse my palate. Like, remove any and all memory of the shot. Uh, If there's someone in the room with a Men in Black memory eraser, please come zap my brain because I do not want to remember this shot. Um, So, I don't like Mary. I never have, and specifically in this episode, I didn't like when Coach Shaw was thanking Mary for having Jen at her church, saying the congregation was so kind to Jen, and Mary's like, well, that's because I told them to be. Like, the implications here are weird on many levels. What exactly are you saying about the members of your church? Like, they wouldn't be kind unless you told them to be? Um, Also, overall, I just, I think she's really insufferable, and I don't like that she just seems to hate being there. Like, she really doesn't seem like she wants to be on the show, which is fine, but then don't be on the show. Um, which I guess she's not anymore, so great. <laughs> but anyways, with all of that said, um, seeing Jenny in this episode, once again, complaining about how Mary didn't say hi, and, uh, you know, she comes and she's inserting herself in the conversation between Mary and Whitney, you know, I I get it. Like I said, I don't like Mary. Mary is rude. She is mean. But seeing Jenny go there again, you know, regardless of how much I don't like Mary, I was just like, Jenny, let it go. Like, it's been an entire season of this. And now you're you're coming off as obsessed. Like, were you really expecting anything different from Mary this time around? Why do you care so much? Oh, well, we know why she cares so much. Also, Did you guys see that Jenny didn't get a finale caption at the end? Like, they just completely glazed over her, which I think is unprecedented. So, you did something, Jenny. (laughs) Um, Similarly, I feel like Jen Shaw has become obsessed with Meredith, uh, in the same way that Jenny's obsessed with Mary. Like, why do you care so much that Meredith is or isn't your friend? Meredith has said multiple times this season that you guys aren't friends, you know? And this episode, Jen is like, but wait, like, are we friends or not? And it's, it's like, if you have to ask, you're not friends. Um, also, Meredith's answer was very Heather Dubrow to Noella. I'm not sure I'm the right friend for you. But unlike Heather Dubrow, Meredith has seemed to have forgotten how to keep her cool. She's blowing her gasket, to quote Teresa Judice, and she storms off once again, And it was a really weird way to end the finale and end the season. You know, the whole, uh, I'll talk about who everyone dated moment that they had been teasing, you know, all season long. It was very anticlimactic, unless more is revealed in the reunion. So let's just hope for our sake that Meredith decides to engage when Andy asks the hard questions. (laughs) 
Okay, guys, I am so excited to be chatting with a good friend of mine who's appeared in the first national tour of Sister Act. She was Wednesday Adams in the Adams Family, Wendla in Spring Awakening, and she is currently performing on Broadway with the cast of Wicked. Ladies and gentlemen, Michaela Martinez. Hi, Michaela. Hi, Blake. That was the best <laughs> intro ever. Thank you. Well, I've got to hype you up, you know? I mean, it, oh my God. I've known you for so long and like looking through your list of credits and seeing all of the things you've accomplished, I felt like such a proud dad. So um, I got to give you your props. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. I mean, you saw it when it all started. So I, I know it's crazy. So I've known you since high school. Um, but by that point, you were already exhibiting some serious star power. So uh, I, I, I want to know, when did you start performing? Like, where did this all come from? You know, are you uh, do you come from a family of performers or, or how did it all begin? My family are definitely performers. My dad uh, plays guitar and plays piano and he sings and my mom plays piano and she sings and my grandma also is a singer. So that is definitely my blood. Um, but I will say when I got to Catalina Foothills, Carl Hussey was like, you need to audition for Chorus Line. And I was like, really? Okay. And I remember going through the audition process, like the dance call and, you know, singing my little 16 bar cut or whatever it was that they yeah. wanted us to do. And I, the seed was planted. I just, I couldn't, I couldn't deny how much I loved being on stage and performing. And also I was just so lucky to be surrounded by so many wonderful performers at that age. Like we were just so lucky, the yeah. class that that we yeah. had to like look up to was just incredible. So. Absolutely. And I um, I was also in a chorus line. So I guess that was our first show together that we did. Where it we was. Both, we both were in the ensemble. And I remember, I mean, so I, I basically was only in like the opening number and then the closing number, like nothing Same. else in between. <laughs> um, I remember the opening number is, you know, that classic song, God, I hope I get it. I hope I oh, get yeah. it. And, you know, we, spoiler alert, we didn't get it. So <laughs> we, at the end of that opening number, we get like asked to leave the casting call. And I remember in one of the performances, you know, I we're supposed to like get mad and kind of storm off stage. And I remember like accidentally or maybe purposely like bumping into a set piece, like a table or something. And it went into the orchestra pit and like crashed into everything. <gasps> Do you not remember that? <laughs> no, I have the worst memory, but that oh is God. amazing. No, I totally forgot about that or just yeah. never even knew. That's right. amazing. I mean, you maybe had already like stormed off stage left and this was <laughs> happening like stage right or something. I don't know. I think subconsciously I was trying to like get a moment, you know? But <laughs> little did I know that you were, you know, leaving this one five minute moment of fame as, you know, exquisitely as possible, as you, memorably as possible. I mean, you know better than anyone. You've got to make your mark, you know, <laughs> you've got to make your mark. And if you are Blake, you absolutely have to make your mark. Oh, I my mean, gosh. You were one of the people that I always looked up to, too. I mean, it was like Molly and Amy and you and just these like really ex like exquisite, excited um in the moment passionate performers and we were uh -huh. so young but like it was it was all there so You're I was very just kind sweet. of like it's true it's uh -huh. true in the moment was, is a really nice way to phrase it I look back now on um like my theater uh career so to speak um 
And I just am like, God, I was so unprofessional. But I guess in, <laughs> in the moment is a good way to, to say it. <laughs> you know, I just, I, like I, I, like I, was, I was there and whatever I was feeling, I was going to like leave on that stage, whether the director was okay with it or not. <laughs> and we call that being in the moment, people. Exactly, improv. <laughs> um, okay, so I, you know, I don't wanna go like too deep into like the high school theater of it all, but you know, because that was when we knew each other, what were some of your favorite like high school theater memories or your favorite shows that you were part of, favorite roles? Um, I definitely will never forget playing Annie and Annie Get Your Gun. Oh my God, you were um, so good. You were phenomenal. Thank you. That was definitely like my first time leading a show, mm -hmm. uh, like really leading a show because she just never leaves the stage. So, yeah. and I just remember, I never really practiced at home. I always sort of like did everything at the rehearsals. And so when my parents came to see the show, they were shocked. They were like, when did you learn all these lyrics and these lines and these dance moves and all of this? this entire show and I was like I don't know it's just kind of like happened and um that was when I was like oh wow I really love how it feels to lead a show yeah I I can totally relate to that um in terms of really building the character and the performance in the rehearsal space like I was never someone who would go home and you know run lines with my parents or like sit and and like you know really practice to get off book I feel like all of that just came and was formed into muscle memory during the rehearsal process and yeah. that's so much more fun like I'm not someone who is going to go home and be like oh, I'm going to study my lines like <laughs> for, for me it's, it's acting it's and being especially theater like it's play you know you get to play with other actors so so when you're at home, just like reading a script by yourself, you might be reading the lines, but it's not the same as like being in that rehearsal space with your, you know, your ensemble and your fellow castmates and like really getting to play. I absolutely agree. And I think that was the first time when I really understood that and how yeah. important that is. So, yeah. yeah. What was, what was your favorite show that we did together? Um, I love Sweeney Todd because oh I God. played, I can't even remember the character. You were the beggar the woman. No, that was Angela. I played the Oh my the God, man. yes, yes. You, wait, who were you? It was like some Italian guy. I don't know. He was like oh, were you villain. Pirelli? You were Pirelli? I was Pirelli. I oh was my Pirelli. gosh, Pirelli. Why weren't you the beggar woman? That seems like that would have been I, a really good part for you. You're very, you can do like operatic type It was vocals. like Jenny and Angela. I remember when I didn't get it, I was like, oh my God, I'm crushed, you know? But that's how, um, but, you know, that's how it goes, especially in high school theater, when it's like it the is. same group of 20 people auditioning for all of the same parts. Like, I remember when we did <clears throat> Chicago, I, I didn't- <gasps> Chicago, how could I forget Chicago? I know, so, oh. so fun. But I remember so I, I didn't even get called back for Billy Flynn, and I was like, so pissed, like livid. And then, you know, the next season when we did Sweeney Todd, I remember I got called back for Anthony and like, you know, Carson and whoever was Billy Flynn, they didn't get called back. And so we were just always competing with each other. And, um, the, you know, it was always very political, but at the end of the day, like we all loved the crap out of each other. And I remember when we I didn't did. get, you know, when I didn't get Billy Flynn, like I was so mad, but then when the show went up and I was Amos and I saw Carson as Billy Flynn, I was like, okay, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> well, I think too, like that was the first time that I had to learn, how do you deal with rejection? How do you deal with not getting the part that you want? And that is a huge part of our life. And yeah. as a performer, you know, you just have to be able to like deal with it and feel it 
but then let it go and yeah. and embrace whatever opportunity has come your way, you know? And now I look back on Sweeney Todd and I'm like, that's so freaking cool that I played Pirelli. Like, yeah. I would love to do that now. That'd be so sick. So right. I think it was a, yeah, it was, but it was a great learning experience for sure. But Chicago, like, I mean, that was the, that's my favorite for sure. It was incredible. And we had our, our makeup and our hair done every night. Remember yeah. that like salon that would do all of our hair? Yeah. I mean, people, oh, people like, so fun. I don't think people understood. I don't think we at the time understood like how legit our theater program was. Um, yeah. I remember when my husband, Matt, and I moved back to Tucson, we went and saw a show there a few years ago and we like walked into the theater space and he, his mouth just dropped and he was like, wait, I'm sorry, this is a Damn high me. school theater. And I remember, yeah. um, you know, we, when we did the Wizard of Oz, we had like, a, like a, a team come in and actually like fly the witch and fly the monkeys yeah. over the stage. And like, you know, when we did Chicago, we had these huge, huge like scaffolding set pieces built. And remember they made that giant light up Roxy sign that like rose up into the mm -hmm. sky with her on it. Like and there was like a swing or something. Yeah, there point. was just so, so many cool things. And I think that we were so lucky um, to have so the experience that we did because like I said, I mean, I was so unprofessional. I was such a like little ham. Um, but that you being said, that's when you I, do that. <laughs> right. But, but all that said, like we had the closest thing to like a professional theater experience that probably any, you know, teenager or kid could have without actually acting like on Broadway, you know? So we Absolutely. were really lucky. And I think that probably so set, set you up for a lot of success. I, could not agree more. I mean, Herb, Testa, just like the coolest duo, but also so incredibly passionate about what they do. And like I said, you know, the seed was planted and then it just blossomed. And I think it really, it made me believe that I could not only get a degree in it, but hopefully one day actually do it as a career. So yeah, well, let's talk super grateful for that. Yes, let's talk about your your continuing theater education. So tell us about where you went for school, what that experience was like, um, you know, training to become a professional actress. So I decided I wanted to leave Arizona, even though U of A has an incredible musical theater program. Yeah, wait, let's, program. let's talk about that. Why did you opt to not go there? Because I did the same thing. I auditioned and I got in and I was like, hell no. <laughs> I think because I was born and raised in Tucson. So 18 years of the same thing kind of led me to want to spread my wings and experience a new place and a new group of people and kind of throw myself into the unknown. Um, and I always loved California and I felt like it was kind of close enough where I wasn't moving all the way across the country to New York, but I was an eight hour drive away from my family or an hour and a half flight. And so I picked Fullerton, Cal State Fullerton is where I went to get my BFA in musical theater. And um, it's a state college, so it was affordable. They had a great BFA program that um, I was able to kind of like watch and observe and just felt like, okay, I feel like this would be a good fit for me. And then um, it worked out. I mean, it was kind of different in those days. In those days, I say that as a <laughs> Back in the day. An old broad. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> um, but like, you didn't have to audition to get into the program. You had to, you could just kind of like sign up. So then the first like two years of that program, the freshman and sophomore year, you were basically getting ready for what they called juries. And then you would either be accepted in the program on junior year or you wouldn't be. So you've basically like done two years of your life in hopes that it's going to work out. Right. And then the next two years, junior and senior year are um, 
you're with like a, a small class, maybe like 10 to 12 people that they've picked out of what usually starts at a hundred people. So it was a lot of pressure, but um, again, like lessons that I gained from that was like, if you really want to do this, you have to be that in love with it. You have to just know in your heart of hearts that like, there's nothing else in the world that you want to do. Right. Because it just takes that amount of commitment. And um, I think pure love for this craft. Um, And I was lucky enough to be accepted into the class. There was 10 of us in my class. It was kind of small, but um, five five boys, five girls. And um, that was my junior year. And then I graduated in 2012. So now while you were at Fullerton, were you also dipping your toes into like professional theater in the surrounding areas as well? Yeah. So a few summers I would do um, shows with like Riverside Theater, I think, because one of our directors was directing there and she did Chicago and I was able to play Velma, which was really fun. Oh my God. Amazing. And yeah, I mean, our schedule to get it, I don't know if it's like this everywhere. I feel like it probably is, but it was nuts. I mean, I had no time to do anything. And usually over the summer, I would have to take classes so that I could get all of my credits done and then be able to graduate. Because when you're in school, you're like never at home right or ever having any time to do anything other well than especially theater, so. when, yeah when you're juggling school and rehearsals it's, it's yeah it's like a non-starter it's impossible know? so over the summer I would do like you know Chicano Chicano studies or music and film like kind of the geography like get those credits done which I enjoyed because you know I I liked that I went to a college that wasn't necessarily a conservatory I liked that I was able to still dip my toes in lots of different areas um and doing it over the summer gave me the opportunity to really focus on it, which was necessary. Yeah, that was one thing, uh, that was probably the biggest thing for me actually that uh, drove me away from the University of Arizona was that it is a conservatory program. And so I was like thinking I'd be so limited. I knew I wanted to double major, which isn't an option there. Um, So all of those Mm -hmm. things are really important to consider. And I think it is really, really beneficial to be able to go and act outside of this little bubble of 10 people that you have in your program at school. You know, I mean, not only are you networking and making connections, but like every cast that you're a part of, every uh, project that you do, you learn so much. So you probably were bringing back a lot of useful skills when you, you know, went back to class after the summer. Yeah, because, you know, when you audition outside of school, it's so different. Um, You know, in school, they're like very, I don't know, the etiquette is a little higher than I would say it is normally. Like you don't walk in and say, hi, my name is Michaela. Like they know that your name is Michaela. Like they have your, their resume right in front of you. So you're like, hi, how are you? You know? And they're like, hi, it's so nice to see you. What are you going to sing for us today? It's just, it's a lot more relaxed. And I had to learn that by actually getting out of school and auditioning and seeing what it's actually like in the real world. And I think having those experiences was very beneficial. Um, and so, yeah, like you said, I'm grateful that I was able to dip my toes in other things. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about New York city. When did you move? (laughs) When did you move to New York and, and what, you know, what took you out? I mean, obviously theater took you out there, but I mean, for me, even as someone who loves performing, I just, the thought of living in Manhattan has always scared the crap out of me. So you're a great, you're a great (laughs) soul. I want to hear about like that whole, uh, journey of moving to New York. Okay, well, I, I'll start with like a little tidbit in the beginning. I, I joined the Wicked National Tour in 2018. Right, that was yes, my I first, knew that. 
yeah, that was my first kind of experience with Wicked. I'd been auditioning for years. I think I auditioned like seven different times and I was just determined. I was like, I'll be the tree in the back. I don't care who I am. I don't care what I am. I want to be in Wicked. This show is iconic and legendary and I want nothing more than to be a part of it. So I just kept going because I just, I believe that at some point it would work out. And I'm really glad that I didn't give up because it did work out. Yeah. So I joined the national tour in 2018. I joined in Nashville, Tennessee, and I was with that tour for two years. And then um, in 2019, around December, I decided, okay, I think it's time for me to pivot and move to New York. Like I'm about to turn 30. Um, I have put it off long enough and I will really regret not living there and at least giving it a try if I don't do it. So I put my notice in on tour and, um, you know, planned like a two week break with my family and then, you know, found a place to live in New York and was like, okay, I'm going to move January, 2020. And as I'm getting everything ready, my agent calls me and he's like, Hey, uh, the Broadway company of Wicked has has asked if you would be interested in taking over for the same role that you play in the national tour, which is the singer's thing is what they call me. And I was like, would I be interested? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I would be thrilled. Like, oh my God, just like casually my dreams coming true. Wow. Um, and I, you know, obviously said yes. And, and there was a couple of weeks of just kind of figuring out logistics, but then the contract came through while I was still on tour. I was in, where was I? I was in Atlanta at the Fox and I got the email while we were in rehearsal and I ran outside with my best friend, Jordan, and we screamed on the steps outside of the stage door and just like did a little happy dance. And, um, and so then the plan was set in stone. I, I was to move to New York January 4th. 2020 and then I started rehearsal January 5th 2020 and um yeah it was uh it was a whirlwind of an experience for sure wow and, and then and, right you know how it goes <laughs> right right of course of course March 2020 dun 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 2020. Um, but I yeah. I mean how cool is it that you can actually say like you you didn't even have to audition for like your first Broadway role. You were offered the role. How cool is that? It is very cool. I I it's good that you say that because sometimes I don't give myself enough credit. So I think it's like it's important to kind of take take stock of the really special moments like that. Yeah, and absolutely. Yeah, and if, if very you, grateful for that. If you aren't taking stock of them, that's why I'm here to take stock of it for you. <laughs> I know you're the best hype man ever. I told you. Um, okay, so <laughs> were you able to make your Broadway debut before COVID hit or or was it delayed? I was able to. So I cover seven different roles in the Broadway company and I cover six different roles on the national tour. So they're both the same show, but they are a little different in what every track does and wears and things like that. So um, I basically had to relearn the show. It wasn't like the same I could just kind of like be plopped in. So I did three weeks of rehearsal with our dance captain, Antoinette, and she taught me this new version of Wicked basically. And my brain was fried, but I, it was definitely easier to learn this version than it was the first one because my swing brain had sort of been turned on and I was able to understand how to best learn a job like this, a very yeah. unique, <laughs> difficult job at times. Um, and obviously the show of Wicked still remains the same, but it's just kind of like, which 
puzzle piece am I now? And where do I fit in this picture now um, on this new Broadway stage? And um, I was actually able to do every single track except for Nessa before the uh, shutdown. So that was six of my seven roles wow, that I was awesome. able to do. Yeah, and I remember I my Broadway debut, I think it was January 19th or 17th or something like that. And I was like, can you just put me on? I just want to get it over with. <laughs> <laughs> Because it's just kind of like that for swings, you know, we learned so many different things and like my family's here, so they couldn't really get out in time and they didn't know that, like, I wish that we had been a little bit more proactive about that because, you know, you know how it went. Right. But I just kind of wanted to like, you know, do the thing. And so I went on for a track we call Cupcake on Broadway. We have all these weird names for the tracks. And the reason why they call this track Cupcake is because she wears this like Cupcake-esque outfit in Emerald City um, in one short day. So she is also the um, Alphaba understudy track. So she sings, um, no one cries, they won't return in the very beginning. That's like her solo, which is such a fun solo in the opening number. But that's the track I did for my Broadway debut. And I felt so ready and confident. And it was just like, very surreal. And I think the greatest memory I have from that night was Bows. I think it all sort of like hit me that I had just done it. Like I looked out at the audience and the Gershwin is huge. It's one mm-hmm. of the biggest Broadway theaters in the US. So there was just tons of people and they're all standing and clapping. And usually when someone debuts, like everybody claps for you in the cast as mm-hmm. you're bowing, like it's very special and, and I don't know the cast is really wonderful about making people that are making their debut just feel so loved and supported. And I just started crying and I was like, Oh, "Oh, hold it in, like get it together. And I could not get it together. I was just bawling and I could feel everyone watching me. And I was like, Oh my God, this is so embarrassing. But later a lot of people came up to me and they were like, it was so moving to see you get so emotional because it reminded me how special this job is and how, much people dream of this moment to just step on stage and finally make their Broadway debut and be in a Broadway show. So to see you get so emotional and so um, vulnerable was just like really a good reminder for how amazing of a job we have. And then they all wrapped me up in hugs and gave me a card and, and some champagne and just like cheered me on. And it was just, yeah, I think I'm so lucky because it's not just the job of like doing this wonderful show it's also the cast yeah that is so uniquely beautiful and wonderful and full of genuine authentic human beings that I love to death so yeah. I but feel I, very lucky for that I think a lot of people um I had a, a theater uh, professor in college that would call people who who don't do theater we, she had a name for them she would call them civilians so I think <laughs> I think civilians outside of like the theater that. world don't understand truly how much of a family is formed when you're on a show is in a cast with other people and and mm-hmm. that type of bond and it's so different than just like a standard coworker and that's not to say that like everyone in the cast gets along or loves each other you're best friends with any of them but like to be a part of 
something that is so dependent on all of these moving parts and and you all balance each other out and and you know assist mm-hmm. with the assist with the layup when you need it look at me with the sports reference um oh you know, all, I know right? but it's just it's such a unique experience and i can only imagine that you were just showered and surrounded with love that night and I, even without knowing these people, I know that it was like truly authentic because it, it's, it is so magical to get to see someone shine. Um, and you shine, Michaela, you really do shine when you perform. So <laughs> I can only imagine. So you've, you mentioned that you were a, a singer swing and you're talking about tracks and all of that. Explain to anyone listening what a swing does and how a swing is different than say like a typical understudy. So a swing is not in the show every night. A swing sits backstage and only does the show if someone is out because they're injured or someone is just out because they're out. Someone's on vacation, someone's on a medical leave, can be an assortment of things. But when there is a hole, they fill it with a swing so that the show can continue as it normally would. And so most swings know seven to 13 tracks in this show, I think. Um, we have a dancer swing who knows like all the dancer tracks. Then we have a, a crossover swing that knows all the singer tracks and the dancer tracks. We have a dance captain who knows pretty much everything, principles included, because they're constantly teaching new people. Um, and then we have me, who's the singer swing who covers mostly singers. So it'd be the midwife, Nessa, and then four other or five other ensemble tracks that have really weird names that I won't get into, but um, yeah. And so for me, I have to know all of the vocal lines. I have to know all of the blocking. I have to know all of the lines and the solos and um, sort of just be ready for anything and everything. Yeah. And, and swings and understudies typically don't get the same amount of rehearsal time that you know the, the lead actors or the principals do. So you, yes. you could say yeah. that it's maybe like the hardest role in a show. It definitely is very difficult and it takes, um, I would say a specific human to actually enjoy doing it because it can be very stressful. Um, and I would say for the swings, you know, for, for a normal ensemble tracker, understudy track, you get what's called a put in and you get to do your costumes and do the show with, you know, the cast all comes in for rehearsal and so you sort of get like a run of that role so that then that night, you get put on in the show and you've already had this rehearsal and you sort of understand how it's going to go. Well, with swings, we have seven different tracks. So they can't give us seven different put-ins that would just take forever. So you get one put-in and then the rest of them you get thrown into and they say, good luck, have fun, breathe, and, you know, hope for the best. And so, you know, that can be, that can be very anxiety inducing, but for me, I really, I found that I really, really love it. Good. What's the shortest notice you've ever had before having to like jump into a role? So I definitely, there's what we call mid-show swaps, which are when somebody calls out mid-show and they either like don't feel well or they've gotten injured or something's happened. And then over the intercom, it's like the role of blah, blah, blah will be played by Michaela Martinez. And then you like jump out of your seat and start pin curling your hair like a crazy person someone's trying to get a mic on you someone's throwing tights at you someone's trying to figure out which costume you're supposed to be wearing and it's just fun I mean it's like an adrenaline rush of just like excitement and 
and insanity. And I don't know, I just eat it up. So there's been those I've had one where I was in a track already in an ensemble track and our Nessa got sick. So I was swapped from my ensemble track to Nessa. And so I did my whole ensemble track for the first act. And then I just switched to Nessa for the second act. She has one scene and then she's done. So it was like the best. Um, and I, and it's the best scene of the whole of that role for sure. So that was pretty fun. And I'm trying to think, yeah, I think those are, those are some good examples. So, oh. yeah. Well, swings and understudies have, have been hugely important, you know, yes. with, with the, the reopening of Broadway, you know, during this pandemic. Um, yeah. so it must feel nice to finally see, swings and understudies getting this much deserved recognition. You know, I, I'm seeing it talked about all the time. Yeah, no, I think, um, it's been a long time coming and I'm, like you said, I'm just so happy that people are finally realizing all the ins and outs that it takes and all the people that it takes to make a show run. And it's, it's so much bigger than I think so many civilians realize. And even people, I I want you to take, yeah, take it back to wicked. (laughs) Um, and even like people in our industry who don't necessarily understand what it means to be a swing and how important we are. I think they're realizing. Um, and yeah, it's an exciting time. I mean, there's, there's been a lot of change within the theater community and, uh, I, I think it's all for the best and I think it's finally happening and I'm really excited to be a part of it. Yeah. Great. That's so good to hear. Um, okay. So I want to dive into, Wicked specifically. Uh, for any of our listeners who aren't familiar with Wicked, I, I don't know what the hell they've been doing for the past two decades. But <laughs> you've been living under a rock. <laughs> right? Literally. Will you uh tell them a little bit about the story of Wicked and why you think it resonates with so many people? Why is it special to you and why is it special to audiences? I think the story is just everlasting. There's just something about it that people really connect to. And it's the story of two women, Alphaba and Glenda, and their journeys to becoming what we all know as the Good Witch and the Wicked Witch. And it's sort of the prequel to The Wizard of Oz. Um, and right now, I think it's something that people connect to because it's a lot about skin color and how, you know, people are treated differently based on their differences, how people stereotypically might fall into certain roles, but then realize sort of like what Glenda goes through, the the true meaning of connection and friendship and bonds between women. And then I think it also plays to the world we're living in, like propaganda and different beliefs and how we're all sort of like trying to figure out what we want to believe is true. And that sort of connects to like the wizard and Madame Morrible who are sort of spinning these lies and deception in order to make an entire community turn against somebody who never meant to hurt anybody and was, I'm talking about Alphaba, is actually, you know, trying to save and change the world for the better. For good. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I mean, yeah, right. You're you're so right. Like uh my husband and I were talking about something 
the other day or a couple of weeks ago. I don't even remember what it was, but it was like some, you know, political nonsense. And, mm-hmm. and I, I even said, I was like, this is just like that song from Wicked that the wizard sings. You know, it's all about whatever label is able to persist. Like you slap a label on something and that's what people are going to think. So it doesn't matter uh, if you're, uh, uh, what is it? Like a ruthless crusader or like a, mm-hmm. like a revolutionist or something, but it's like, you know, oh whatever. Oh my God, you're so good. Yes, yes. Right. But so it's like, we can, you know, whichever label we decide, if I say you're a good guy and that sticks, then you're a good guy, but other people might think you're a bad guy. And I mean, that's what the show is all about. And isn't that the world that we live in today? You know, we're all just pointing fingers at someone else and saying, no, you're the bad guy. I'm not the bad guy. You're the bad guy. Mm -hmm. And speaking of labels, you know, putting people into boxes and deciding who you are for them when you don't actually know people because we're living behind screens and we're not necessarily connecting to each other like we used to. Um, it just, I don't know, you, you just, you delve into the show and like, you see it and it's this incredible experience, but then you really think about it and you like think about the lyrics and it just resonates no matter what. And I'm just, I'm, I'm not shocked, but I am shocked at how, how much it still resonates even more today. Like, I just feel like we are living in the world of wicked sometimes. Yeah. And like, what a, what a crazy thing because the show's almost 20 years old. Yeah. But I mean, so you see, it has really stood the test of time. Yeah. Well, and you see so many musicals that, I mean, look at West Side Story, just, you know, mm, it's still yeah. so topical and still so yes. relevant. And, and that's decades older than Wicked, you know? So shows Absolutely. like this, they, it's funny, people look at musical theater and they think, oh, it's all just song and dance and jazz hands. But it really is, in my opinion, one of uh, the, the most poignant uh, and important outlets for like a reflection of culture, you know what I mean? Yes, and and to be able to bring thousands of people together to hopefully delve into those ideas and cultural phenomenons and opinions and like all get us on the same heartbeat, like that's just what it's all about. Absolutely, so, absolutely. Yeah. So you mentioned obviously uh, there are implications of like racial tensions within Wicked, obviously not so much about race, but skin color. She's, she's green. Mm-hmm. And that she's causes, green. that causes an uproar. Um, it does. so, so I want to bring up something that is incredible and really important. The very first black Glinda stepped into the, the role on Broadway. And this is historic. It's monumental. It's, uh, about damn time, but I, <laughs> I want to know, yeah, I want to know as someone who's in the show, a part of this cast is now going to be performing with Brittany, who is now, you know, the new Glinda. What was that like for you and for the cast when you guys heard the news that she was going to be stepping into that role? Oh, Brittany is the best. She is genuinely, she is Glinda, but she's just so kind and so authentic. And so she'd actually been there as the standby. Um, she started on Broadway as um, an ensemble track. Uh, her role is, oh, what do they call Celia's track? Fainter, because she faints when she sees Elphaba. So okay. she started off in that track. And that I, I love studies. this. Next time I go see the show, because I've seen it a bunch of times, but next time I'm, I'm going to see like the ensemble and be like, that's Cupcake, that's Fainter. <laughs> I'll keep telling you the names because they're really funny. Please do. Um, but But yeah, so she was fainter and she also understudied the role of Glenda. And then the standby role opened up 
and they asked her to take over as the Glinda standby. And um, so she obviously accepted. And then she was able, she debuted, I don't know, I can't remember when it was, but it was, that was monumental too, because that was the first time ever that I think a Black Glinda had ever played the role. Um, and so I remember that being very exciting for everyone. I don't think I was in the show at that point, but I remember seeing it on Instagram and Facebook and just being just enamored by her and her her light. She's very, she's just like the brightest, shiniest human. But anyway, so then her contract was ending and we started sort of like hearing little things here and there. We and like seeing little clues on papers that maybe we shouldn't have seen. And she comes into the dressing room a lot to kind of say hi to all of us. She, she literally goes from person to person to person and puts her hands on our shoulders and, and looks at us in the mirror and says, how are you? Aww. And checks in with everyone. I'm telling you, she's just an angel. She's, um, she's Glenda. She's Glenda. <laughs> and she was with us and we all kind of got really quiet and started staring at her and she's like what and we were like do you have something that you want to tell us and she was like oh, how did you find out and we were like eee! and she's like and we were like can you just say it she's like I don't know if I'm allowed and then we finally got her to say it she's like I will be taking over for Glinda on February 14th 2022 and we all just like erupted in you know squeals and excitement and class uh -huh. and it was just like such a, I'll never forget that. She was just, and she was so happy and excited. And then all of us, like I said, the cast is just really, really supportive and wonderful. So that was really cool to have that unique moment with her. Um, and then, yeah, then it, the, the ball started rolling and um, she joined, she had her debut as the role of Glinda on February 14th, Valentine's Day, what yeah. better day um to have this momentous occasion yeah it's uh it's so amazing and i think it's always really important when um these moments happen and i've always been a huge proponent of colorblind casting i think that there is there is so much that can be done there i mean look at mm -hmm. the impact that hamilton had um yeah. but i i think even more so when it's done in a way that's like this where it's like it's not really it doesn't it, it's not done you know to make a statement like Hamilton okay. was you know it's really yeah. just done because she is the best one for the role and absolutely and how many minorities and especially minority women probably have missed out on on parts even though they were the right one for the role just because of their skin color so the fact that you know, the director and producers and everyone involved decided to take not not just a character that's beloved from this show, but I mean, Glinda is like a, a an iconic character since the 1920s. I mean, when you think of Glinda, you think of this white blonde lady in a bubble. Mm -hmm. And the fact that they were willing to, you know, just, you know, pop that that white bubble and, yep. and give the role to someone who's just as deserving, but maybe looks a little different, it's... I'm I'm so so happy, and I think that it is going to set the stage, no pun intended, for for the future of Broadway and performing. I really really hope so, and I think I just imagine little girls in the audience looking up at Brittany and just being so in awe of her and seeing themselves in her, and knowing that they can and will have those opportunities, and how amazing that must feel for them um so yeah i i'm i'm just i can't believe i get to witness it i just feel like the luckiest girl on this planet 
Oh, that's that's incredible. I'm so happy for her. I'm so happy for the cast. Like I said, I'm I'm just elated. Um, now I want to I want to keep talking about casting. Obviously, the Wicked movie has been something that has been talked about for mm-hmm. years, years and years and yeah. years. And oh yeah. Finally, a few months ago, they announced uh, that the leads were cast. How do you feel about the casting? Are you excited? Um, what what was your thoughts when you heard the news? I am thrilled for Cynthia Rizzo. Yes. That is going to be, I mean, I want to, I want her to come to Broadway and perform with us because I'm like, I, you are like, I bow down to you. She is incredible. She's incredible. She's just like such a magnetic human. Like I've just, I've seen her in a lot of TV shows now and obviously in her work on Broadway. And it's just every time I'm like, can't take my eyes off of you. So the fact that she's playing Alphabet, I think is going to be pretty, pretty incredible. So I'm very excited about that. You know, to touch on our last point, she's a black yes. woman, and she's yes. step, she's stepping into this role of a woman who is judged because of her skin color. So, uh, I mean, I don't know what the talks were behind the scenes, but this seems like it could have been a little more intentional. And um, again, I think an important move to make. You know, me too. And I think I hope that you know there will be uh, a black woman offered the role of Linda sooner than later because I don't think there has been too many. I don't think anyone has been offered the role in the U.S. You mean of Alphabet? I think there's been like a, yeah, I think there's been a standby that was black in the U.S. And I think in the U.K. they did have a woman play Alphabet that was black. But I, I think it's high time for that too. So I'm hoping that this, like you said, sort of gets the ball rolling for for that as well. Um, but I'm very excited for Cindy Revo. And then obviously, I mean, Ariana Grande's an icon. Right. So but my mouth kind of was like on the floor because I didn't really see her as a Glinda. Okay. Just because Glinda's like, I don't know, like more of a legit soprano in my mind. And like Ariana Grande has an incredible voice, but I've never heard her sing like that. Right. And I've never really seen her like do a lot of acting. I don't really know. So I'm I'm a little apprehensive about her, but I'm excited. I mean, yeah. like- this is going to be so cool. And I hope that she does nothing but, you know, flourish and succeed and play the role as beautifully as everyone hopes she does. Like, yeah, but yeah, I'm a little, I I was kind of surprised to be honest. Yeah. I'm super excited. And I think that she's someone who, I mean, first of all, she's like a theater nerd through and through. So I think she's, she's not going to take this job lightly. Um, You know, she's close with Kristen Chenoweth and I think mm. she's enough of a professional and enough of like a music nerd to really put in the work. Like even if she doesn't necessarily have those like, you know, high soprano operatic uh, abilities yet, I think she will do the work to get herself there, you know? And I I'm, feel like she probably has them. We just have never heard it. Yeah, yeah. And I'm also, like, I, I'm glad that while I'm happy that she was cast and I think, it, you know, obviously the studio is like, oh, we want to get someone who's going to drive in audiences and she's going to mm-hmm. do that. I'm glad that they didn't cast like two superstars in both of the roles. I'm glad it wasn't like Ariana Grande and like, you know, I, I don't know, Leah Michelle or something. Oh yeah. No, I wouldn't have liked that. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm, gl- I'm glad that they kind of went back to like the roots of, of uh, like the, the theater core of it all, you know? Yeah, um, I 
I think like it reminded me of when Lady Gaga sang something from The Sound of Music at one of the like award shows or something. And it was right. just a completely different sound coming out of her. And I was like, of course she can do this. But like, right. that's not the that's not the character that she plays as this pop icon. Right. But it doesn't mean that they don't have the abilities to do that. So it would not be fair for me to be like, well, Ariana Grande can't do that. Like, we don't know. We're complex human beings. We're capable of so many things than right. just what we, you know, do for a living. And so like, I can't not give her the credit of being like, well, I, I hope, I hope nothing more than for her to just like have the time of her life and, yeah. and play this role in the way that everybody hopes for. Cause I can't imagine the pressure that they feel. Yeah. Absolutely. Like that's, that's a that's a big role to take on, especially because of all the hype that's come around this wicked movie. But yeah, well, and these big blockbuster remakes of yeah. Broadway shows, they kind of either hit or miss. Like there's not really, really an in between, you know, no. you're, you're either a Chicago or you're a Cats. So yep. <laughs> um, yeah, totally. it's it's de it's definitely like a, a scary uh, dance to do, but I I'm hopeful. I'm optimistic. Now, what do you think, do you think that they're going to go like full CGI with like the flying monkeys and like Dr. Dillamond and all that? Or do you want it to stay more like, oh like costume and prosthetics? Because that I think is where the, the trouble lies in a show like this, mm. you know, where so right. much is, is dictated by costume and it's like, it's, it's make-believe and it's fantasy. So how is that going to translate? I don't know. I don't love the CGI. Like it really makes me think of cats and I'm like, right. Oh, that just went so poorly, you know? So like, but obviously they can't be in like the costumes that we wear on Broadway that just like wouldn't really read. So right. I don't know, but like, the, well, the director, I can't remember his name, but he directed um, Crazy, Crazy Rich, Rich Asians. Asians. Yeah. Yeah. And so and that movie was so good and I Phenomenal. loved every second. So, and he's, you know, seems like a really innovative thinker. And so I feel yeah. like he's going to figure it out for sure. But that is a really good question. Like I had not thought about that. Yeah. Well, and I have to assume that that's something that has been part of the conversation over these years of, of not only who do we cast, but how do we make this translate to screen, you know? Yeah. Um, Even so like Elphaba's makeup. Like, I wonder what they're going to do with that. I mean, obviously they're going to have really wonderful makeup artists just make her look incredible, but right. Yeah. Right. That's, well, because, there's going to be a lot of ins and outs that I'm going to be very interested to hear about and how they end up doing it. Yeah, exactly. Well, I don't know. Go back when when you're back um, in New York. Uh, go talk to like the people on set. I want to hear like what everyone's opinion and and take is just of how you all that are part of the current show how you wish to see it. You know, project onto the screens. I think that'd be really interesting. So yeah, you, I'm, I'm, I'm giving you I'll, homework, I'll Michaela. Poll. Okay, thank you. <laughs> I'm going to need a survey. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay, we'll, we'll recap later. <laughs> Perfect. Um, do you have any uh, like suggestions or do you have any people on your wish list for any of the other roles in the show? Like, do you, can you see any Fieros or any like Nessa Roses? <sighs> I have not thought about this. I wish I had because then I would come and I'd be so prepared. I, sh I should have given you like a breakdown of the questions. I'm sorry. <laughs> I have not, I have not thought about that. I mean, I want Fiero to be hot, hot, hot. Yeah. And I really want him to just be like an incredible dancer. Um, but no, I have no idea. Okay. Well, take another I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. I should have been more prepared, no, but I'm totally literally fine. just like, I'm going to see, I'm going to ride this wicked movie wave and see where it takes us. And Absolutely. I'm just excited. 
I'm just love excited it. to see what they do. I love it. Um, so I, I mentioned that I actually have seen Wicked numerous times. I was fortunate enough to see the the touring company just like three weeks ago. They came through Tucson yeah. and we went and saw it. My whole family went, we all went on different nights, interestingly enough, but literally like everyone in my family went. Um, and I love it was- that group. It was so phenomenal. I I literally, I mean, I was wearing my mask, but underneath my mask, I had the biggest smile on my face for like two and a half mm. hours straight. I, I was just overjoyed. Um, but I, I do want to talk about, so the first half of the show, and keep in mind, I live in Tucson, Arizona. Like it's not the most cultured place in the world, um, but you do expect like a little bit of theater decorum from people. So the first half of the show, everyone was great, like totally fine. There were no disruptions in the theater. We come back from intermission. It was like a fucking free for all. I don't know what happened during intermission where everyone just went like full hillbilly, but people came back and it was, I was so annoyed by everyone around me. So I wanted to ask you as a Broadway performer, what are like some of your biggest pet peeves or like annoyances that come from the audience while you're performing? Um, this is going to sound super weird, but there are like these, I don't know if people realize, but there are certain coats that when the light hits the coat, you basically turn into like a ghost and your jacket like lights up. It's yeah. almost like a reflective jacket. Right. So we all make fun. Like we have at least one person wearing a ghost jacket at least <laughs> once a week. And all of us like lose our minds. We're like, did you see the ghost in the back? It looks like he's lying down. Did you see the ghost in the front row? It looks like she, <laughs> like we we're such nerds. And then we're all like on stage, like trying to find the ghost. And that's not really a pet peeve, but it just makes me laugh that these people come to the show and maybe they don't realize that like, this jacket is basically going to glow for two and a half hours. Right. And every single person on stage is going to notice it and talk about you behind your back <laughs> backstage. <laughs> so that's one of my favorites. I would say pet peeve wise. I mean, now we're dealing with the masks. So when people don't wear masks, it's very upsetting. Cause it's like, come on, you guys, like just wear a mask for two and a half hours. Like we are, we're giving you a show sans masks. This is the show that you paid all this money for. We want our audiences protected. We want us protected. We want our music director protected. That's basically in the audience with all of you. So I would say that's my biggest pet peeve um, yeah. is when people choose to not wear the masks or don't wear them correctly. Yeah. Uh, so but, um, that's a new thing. <laughs> yeah, no, so. totally. Well, hope people need to get it together. It's really not I that know. difficult. Um, it's really ha not. Have you had experiences with like, I, I hear about, you know, people in the front row will like set stuff on the stage, like put their coat on the edge of the stage or like put yes. their, we what have is that? Put, put their dirty tissue on one of our, like, cause we have cogs and they're mm -hmm. basically like cogs that we stand on and perform on. And like the monkeys are on it. People in the Emerald city are on it. And some person just like put their tissue on the cock. And I was oh, like, wait, 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 my God. this isn't, or like they'll put their drinks on there. Well, it's or, like, like are you supposed to go like pick it up for them? Like what? <laughs> is this a table? This is the set of Wicked on Broadway at the Gershwin. Get your dirty tissue off the cog. Goodness gracious. Unbelievable. Yeah. So like I was saying, we had, when you know, when we came back from intermission, everyone was fine before, but like during the last half of the show, the woman in front of me must have opened like three hard candy wrappers. Um, the guy sitting behind me, oh my God, the guy sitting behind me was like munching on popcorn, which like, we're not at the fucking movies. Like I, I do not think that it's appropriate 
appropriate to be like eating snacks during a live performance. Um, but it was, it, it was like during the last like five minutes of the show, like during for good and the whole finale moment, which like, you know, typically a finale in a Broadway show is like a big, huge song and dance number, but in Wicked, it's kind of like the emotional climax Somber. of the show. Yeah, yeah. And so it was like really quiet and like people are crying in the audience and this guy sitting right behind me is just like chomping handfuls of popcorn. And <gasps> no! I, I, I must have shot him the dirtiest look because by the time I stood up for the curtain call to applaud, he was like out of the theater. He had bolted. Um <laughs> But I'm just like, come God. on, what the hell? I Or people that will whisper to like the person next to them in the middle of a song, like, oh, what did they just say? And then the person responds back, like repeating all of the lyrics back. And you're just like, okay, but now you just missed all of the rest of the song. Like, uh, mm -hmm. so frustrating. But I will say one of my favorites is when, when the audience realizes that the wizard is oh, sorry, spoiler alert right. for everyone. Am I allowed to say this? I don't yes. want to ruin it. No, it. spoiler okay. alert when the audience finds out that the wizard is of the dad, like the amount of gasps and like, oh, can you believe it? And then they all have these little conversations with each other. Cause they're like, right. did you, did you pick that up? That was the wizard was, oh my God. And like, it's annoying, but it's cute. And the same thing happens when Elsa comes out of the little, right, like, the trap wherever door. she's hiding. Everyone's yeah. like, oh, She's, She's alive. alive. <laughs> so like, I kind of love moments like that where the audience yeah. gets a little like, you know, more vocal. But right. uh, yeah, no, it's not a movie theater. Come on, people, don't exactly. be popcorn in your mouth. Right. Like, you're almost done. Oh my God. <laughs> right. Okay. Speaking of spoiler alerts, I have to ask what you think as someone who has played this role. Obviously, uh, Madame Morrible is like the the main villain of the mm -hmm. show. Um, the wizard is a villain, but like, he's just kind of an idiot. Um, yep. But I've always thought that Nessa Rose is like the true villain of Wicked. <laughs> Where do you stand on that? I mean, I think it's best that I don't feel that she's the villain because, you know, as, <laughs> you, you as have to be her playing her character. Yeah. Um, I don't want to play it like that, but I just, yeah, I mean, God, she's just so misunderstood and lost and um, deeply, deeply insecure. Yeah. And I think we can all connect to those dark parts of ourselves that we also struggle with. And so when I play her, I really try to tap into, I mean, I'm insecure. I have shit that I don't love about myself. I deal with self-esteem issues. And I think tapping into those parts of her makes her um, more human and complex and accessible. And I try to play that because ultimately I, I know that she is a very hateable character, but if you try to bring in all the different layers and complexities to her I hope that it can bring some form of like empathy towards her in the end yeah um, that's kind of always my goal when I'm playing her but yes I can see how <laughs> she she's she can be a bitch sometimes a little bit a little bit <laughs> Just a little bit someone yeah. someone drop a house on her <laughs> yeah don't worry, they will. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Michaela, this was so much fun. It was so great catching up with you. And I'm sure all of my listeners were just loving hearing about, uh, you know, how how your star rose on Broadway. I mean, it's, it's honestly like the American dream for so many people. And as someone who has known you for 
I mean, going on what, like 20 years now, which yes, is 20 years. Um, I, like I said before, <laughs> I'm so proud of you. I always knew that you were going to do incredible things. I, I told you this uh, a few weeks ago, I texted you, but my dad who literally does not remember anyone's name, like friends that I've had since I was a kid, he has no idea who they are, but he always, always asks me about you. And he just thought yeah. such a star always, always. And What's he, your he, dad's name? Mario. But he's, he always, he always asks about Michaela and then he'll like clarify it, be like, you know, the pianist. And I'm like, I know who Michaela is, dad. (laughs) (laughs) Tell Mario that I say hi and thank you for thinking of me. That is so awesome. Like this has been such a joy. Like this Uh, hour just flew by. You were so wonderful and charismatic and just, you you are equally as magnetic as everyone I've talked about today. And I'm so grateful that you asked me to be a part of your podcast. Thank you. Well, I love you so much and I hope to see you soon. It was so good talking to you. You too. Bye. Bye.